Welcome to I'm Obsessed With This, the Netflix podcast about the shows and films viewers cannot get enough of. Today, I'm joined via satellite or whatever by digital director of Entertainment Weekly and co-host of their podcast, The Binge, Shana Naomi Krokmal. Hello, Shana. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Um, It's earlier for you than it is for me because that's how time works. It's mystifying to me. Time zones always. (laughs) Thank you for going to the studio in the morning before noon. Thanks That's for having great. me. Any anything to drink? Any Java water or something? <laughs> there are so many beverages in this studio, and I brought my own <laughs> water anyway. So, <laughs> of course. Well, that's great. I love to have an option yes, in front of me. There are so many options. I don't know if you've been in this studio. There's also cough drops in the bathroom, which I'm very appreciative of. Oh, that's so nice. Mm-hmm. I don't really do brunch, especially not anymore. But one thing I miss about brunch is like the abundance of drinks. Yes. Just so many drinks in front of you. I'd love to have options. Many drinks. We're going to talk about Schitt's Creek. We both love Schitt's Creek, obviously. You host <laughs> not one but two podcasts about Schitt's Creek. Tell me the difference between these two podcasts. Sure. So we started with EW's Binge, which I mm-hmm. co-hosted with Patrick Gomez, um, who's a former colleague of mine at EW. And that was sort of dipping our toe into it. The show had existed previously. Uh, we'd mm-hmm. had some folks at EW who looked at all of the Harry Potter movies and at Friday Night Lights. But what we decided to do for the third season of Binge was bring Dan Levy, who is the co-creator, showrunner, and star of Schitt's Creek, Mm -hmm. um, into our studios and basically just hold him hostage while he (laughs) talked about the first five seasons of Schitt's Creek, which he did with such grace and um, stamina. Like, we kept being like, okay, do you want to, you know, we would... Each episode covers one season, and Mm -hmm. as we broke for each season... (laughs) Patrick and I would be like, do you want to take a break? Do you need a glass of water? Do you want to go to the bathroom? And Dan was persistently like, nope, I'm good. I'm good. After like after the fourth episode, I was like, can I take a break? Is that allowed? <laughs> TV actors have phenomenal stamina and when they're running a show as well. So basically, we, we trapped him in our studios. We asked him every single question we could think of about the first five seasons of the show. We also did a couple of bonus episodes. We had Annie Murphy, who plays Alexis, and Dustin Milligan, who plays Ted, talk about just their favorite episodes from across all of those five seasons. Yeah. So some fun bonus content. So that's EW's Binge. And then because we knew how excited we were and slash heartbroken about this sixth and final season, we leveraged everything we could as being part of EW to get to go on location where they were shooting outside of Toronto for a couple of days last summer. And we set up a little mini podcast, kind of pop-up podcast studios at all of these different places that they were shooting in these tiny little small towns outside of Toronto and recorded a ton of interviews there. And then we've done one since then. And so every week, if you are watching season six in real time on Pop TV or on CBC, you we are doing a weekly companion show. Show airs two tonight on Wednesday mornings. You can listen to us on EW on set, which is sort of a little bit of recap and then a bunch of just interviews about the episode you just saw. That's great. I'm not all caught up on the final season yet. I'm sort of sad about it. I am I think too. I've watched four of them. And so I think that I'm just gonna stop until it's finished and then I'll watch them all in some in some very sad afternoon. I think that's a fair strategy. I, I will promise not to spoil anything from season six when we talk today because I know that okay. a lot of folks haven't had the opportunity to watch it yet. I and mean, it's mm-hmm. very good. I highly recommend it. But it it also it might be best ingested in bulk. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a little sad, but we'll get into Schitt's Creek in a second. Before we get into the bulk of our episode, 
what else have you been watching on Netflix? Mm. Uh, I watched Cheer, uh, which was oh, delightful. Um, my week, I went to go back and, and look at what I was looking at in my it's always hard to tell because while my wife and I have separate profiles, we mm-hmm. routinely forget which one we're logged into and just will watch stuff on the other person's and then can't figure <laughs> out where we left off. Uh, so we watched Cheer, okay. um, which like everyone else, I feel like who watched it, we had a lot of feelings about. I I, I love that kind of follow documentary series um, and I thought it was so well done and it was nice to have it to have that sort of sports style documentary focused on something that was less about macho dudes slamming into each other mm-hmm. all the time and instead let everyone sort of have feelings at the forefront instead of it having to be like tucked away and hidden so much. I mean, that's the that's the tagline of cheer. You will have feelings. Yes. <laughs> there are so many feelings. You will cry. You will not realize how you are invested in all of this or how angry you're going to be that cheerleading isn't a viable lifelong career sport for all of these people. <laughs> They've peaked at 21. How dare they? It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Um, I loved, loved, loved the second series of Sex Education. I think it's one of the best shows I've ever watched, period, in, in at any time in my life across like decades of watching shows about teenagers um, or movies about teenagers. I, I loved the first season. I thought it was really good. But mm-hmm. I thought that the second season was just so impactful. It was so it was smart. It was funny. It was heartbreaking. It felt real, even in the, at the same time that it, you know, is obviously stylized to not quite be real. Um, right. I love that show. I sort wish that like show had existed. Not quite American, not quite British. Yeah, yeah. We're like taking this John Hughes style and dropping it in the middle of, you know, somewhere nebulous in England. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think it was so well done. I think I had the same thought after watching the first season. I haven't watched the second season yet. Um, I'm behind on that. And Grace and Frankie, another show I mm. completely adore. But when I was watching Sex Education, I found myself getting a little sad because I was thinking how much I would have loved it had I had it when I was 13 years old. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will confess that Jillian Anderson also was one of my first major, major crushes on someone from a TV show. (laughs) Like, I feel like my first true like TV fandom was X-Files and I was so obsessed with her. And so to have her just continue to be so excellent, I can't wait to see her on The Crown, even if it means I'm going to be like low key rooting for Maggie Thatcher on some level. (laughs) But um, she's great. The show is great. I, I do wish I had had a version of it, but I'm mostly just I love that it exists out there in the world and I feel like it's so much more accessible than it would have been had it been on when I was a teenager Um, and it was so hard to find even the shows that were you know like there wasn't even really like teen drama on cable Mm -hmm. it was like either maybe there was something on MTV or you were lucky and you got to watch My So-Called Life yeah and then there was Dawson's Creek which I could never really get into I was like I don't need this I loved Dawson's Um, even though I was not a teenager anymore by the time it aired, (laughs) but I enjoyed it anyway. um, I'm looking at your Netflix screenshots that you sent me from your app. (laughs) Yes. And I see on continue watching your on season three of Outlander. Yes. Should I be watching Outlander? (laughs) I get mixed things from Outlander. Same. Um, So I started watching Outlander. You know, I work in entertainment before this. I've, I've always had people who worked for me who covered Outlander and were really passionate about it. And I knew the fans were really passionate about it. And I had never watched it myself. And I was traveling so much last year. And my favorite new invention is that 
you know, in hotels when you can easily cast um, from oh, your yes. phone or your laptop to be able to watch in your hotel. This is like the most spoiled, Magic. privileged thing. But now when I don't have it, it makes me really cranky. And <laughs> I just one day decided, oh, well, maybe I should try Outlander. Like it kept showing up as recommended for me from Netflix. And I was like, fine, fine. OK, I'll watch it. And I watched the first season and it was also I could download it to watch it on the plane. And I also at the same time had recently gotten a Kindle Fire, which let me do that. This is all basically devices plus Netflix convinced me to watch (laughs) Outlander. And I'm mostly glad it's an intense show. It's it's very violent. I had this idea as I've been trying to work my way through season three, that it was something that when I was at home in the morning, I could like watch while I was eating breakfast. (laughs) Do not recommend. I literally like looked up for my cup of coffee as this teenager was getting his hand cut off in really gory detail. And I was like, why? Why did I think this is something I could watch while I was eating breakfast? Don't recommend that. The show okay. itself is, you know, it's beautiful. I'm going to Scotland for the first time in a uh, in a month. And it wasn't because of Scotland or it wasn't because of Outlander. But... Oh, sure, sure. No. <laughs> it wasn't because of Outlander. Okay. But it was definitely like, well, and also Sex Education, which is shot largely sort of in this nebulous area of, between mm-hmm. Wales and England, as I have learned as I went through trying to figure out where we might go visit. I love going to visit places um, that I've seen in film. When we went to yeah. Rome, we had a very short amount of time there and so we just built our itinerary around the talented Mr. Ripley. We were like <laughs> I it was it was just something to make it easier to decide oh, how in the perfect. world to narrow everything you want to see in a place down. Everyone should be watching that all the time. I I quote that movie constantly. It's it's the movie that makes me so sad about Philip Seymour Hoffman no longer being with us because he's so great in that film. Um, but everyone in it is outstanding. And by the way, before I forget, Talented Mr. Ripley is streaming now on Netflix. But now let's talk about Shit's Creek. Yes. We know now why you are such a great guest for this. You talked about your two podcasts. You are definitely an expert in, in Shit's Creek. But I want to know how you discovered it. Have you always been a Schitt's Creek fan? Did you start from from episode one? I, I I remember when Schitt's Creek premiered. I was intrigued, right? But I didn't have pop. I didn't really go the extra mile to watch it. And I had a friend who from the series premiere texted me, you would love this show. And for years, every once in a while would text me and ping me and be like, you would like the show. And I never watched it, never watched it until it went on Netflix. And I think I must have tweeted something or Instagram something positive about it. And I got an angry text from that same friend that says, I have literally <laughs> been trying to get you to watch the show for years. What have I been saying? Like, how, how did you get involved in the Schitt's Creek universe? So similar latecomer, um, it's kind of more shameful given where I am now as a fan of the show. <laughs> but I I did not watch it. I, I have grown to appreciate Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara's, you know, genre, I think, more. But that kind of awkward humor that is in a lot of those movies is really not my style. And so I, it just didn't really hit my radar. Mm-hmm. My wife watched it from pretty early on. We had one good friend who was super into it and kept saying, like, I really think you would like this. And actually, my wife and our best friend had this 
ongoing conversation for like two years. They like to debate whether they think I will like something. They both Mm -hmm. know me really well. Our best friend I've known since before I knew my wife. Like either of them I would trust to recommend anything to me. And they were really split on whether I would like Schitt's Creek. They were like, I don't know. It might not be her kind of thing. Maybe it's not. I I don't love a lot of comedies, actually. Very few sitcoms. Um, They're just, I don't know, it's really hard for me to find something on the comedic end of things that really resonates with me. And so I just didn't watch it. But my wife was watching it anyway. And so in that way where like when our schedules would overlap or she would be watching it or she would be going back and rewatching it on Netflix while she was doing something else, I would kind of wander in and out of the room. And she was in the middle of season three or maybe it was season four. It was season four. And there was something with the David and Patrick storyline happening. (laughs) I will tell you the story because I told Dan Levy this story. So I felt like at that point I have no shame left in telling this story. I... I'm walking through the living room and there's one of that very sweet moment in open mic night in season four where Patrick is serenading and there's like it's so emotional right and I literally said to my wife what's this gay shit what's this (laughs) like like suddenly I was interested right and I was also Mm -hmm. like this seems really sweet and sincere and what I didn't know this is what that this show was about right and she of course immediately seized her opportunity and was like yes yes it is some gay shit sit down and I'm going to show you all like all of the relevant parts that you need to see from mm-hmm. from this storyline. We're going to go back to season three. We're going to watch like you're going to meet Patrick. You're going to learn about him. You're going to watch that. And so we did. So we basically watched season three, season four. I can't remember if season five had come out yet on Netflix or if we had bought it on iTunes. <laughs> so we kind okay. of like watched through that. And then we looped back around and watched season one and season two, um, oh, okay. which is actually something I recommend. I've had a lot of people who have asked me about watching this show, obviously now. They're like, you must know, should I watch this show? And um, which is funny to me that the reluctant viewer has become the recommender. And I, depending on who they are, I think I know a lot of people who even who love the show now, who kind of struggle to get into it in season one and season two. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's that the show changed or if I don't think it's that it was worse and then it got better. But I think that the the thing I most fundamentally love about Schitt's Creek is that it is a show that does not fall prey to the standard sitcom reset where at the end of every half hour you basically end up where you started. And right. maybe there are kind of these like character arcs that are more situational than they really are about character growth, right? So someone has to deal with this other thing over the course of many episodes and they figure it out. But I think there's a really big difference between figuring something out and characters growing. And I think that's the strength of Shit's Creek. And I think what you see in a lot of season one and season two Sure, I think there's a certain amount of a show kind of finding its way and its writers and its creators sort of hitting their stride and the, and the actors settling into where those characters are. But in going back and re-watching the early seasons and then sitting down and having the opportunity to talk through so much of those decisions with Dan, I feel like it, what you see in season one and season two are, are people who are kind of jerks. Like, they're not great. And they're in that mm-hmm. really sort of embryonic stage of who they can become and who we hope they will become by the end of the series. And so I think it's tough to kind of jump in and watch season one and season two and be like, who are these guys? Um, They're not very nice to each other or to other people. And like, are we into that? Is it funny? Is it funny enough? Um, So I often recommend to people that they start with season three and once they get hooked, go back and pick up the beginning. That's the first time I've heard that particular kind of advice from people when they talk about the show. And I, I think a common thing is like stick with it. 
and maybe by the end of season one you'll be sold but i think everyone who is a fan of the show recognizes that there is a bit of a learning curve you gotta you gotta trudge through some stuff before it turns into the show that we all know and love now mm-hmm. but you're right about about the, them being kind of unlikable and in, and in a way that's sort of the point of the arc of the show all of the people are growing um like the rose family barreling into schitt's creek changes everyone in these very lovely little ways that are yeah really funny but then by the end of every season especially because it switches the focus from from character to character each season like occasionally people get like their big like stevie finally got the big moment at the end of last season it wants these characters to grow and it wants those sweet moments and it wants everything to feel earned and i think if you've been watching since season one everything does it does feel earned absolutely i think you know, I think especially with um, The Good Place ending this year, I've had a lot of conversations with people about how hard it is to think about these two shows that are so fundamentally invested in the idea of goodness to mm-hmm. be ending at the same time, especially when there's not necessarily a sense that the world has caught up with that and maybe we yeah. need it even more than we did before. But I think that that was inherent in the premise of The Good Place. Like you always knew this was a show about wrestling with goodness and I think what Shit's Creek did really differently was you didn't necessarily like you sort of knew that like superficially where you were like, well, you know, the, if these people are going to survive this circumstance that they've been thrown into because their family lost all their money and now they're stranded in this town, then they're obviously going to have to learn and change and grow in some way. But I think that the depth of that and sort of how long it would take and how ingrained it often is in us to to take the easy way out or to if you don't if you didn't grow up knowing how to really love and express your love for people and connect with people and receive love that it's not something you're just gonna unlearn in like an episode and a half Mm -hmm. or learn in that case right yeah yeah schitt's creek works as a fantasy in the same way good place does and i think more effectively because the fact that the good place exists in this afterlife almost makes the stakes sort of low like i almost don't care Mm. because they're already dead you know like it's less exciting to me than this actual sort of traditional fantasy like like you said what if we could escape and just go to this perfect place yeah like in some way the schitt's creek fantasy feels so much more attainable than the good place fantasy and i think that's part of the appeal i wish that i felt like i knew enough philosophy to now also point out that I feel really uncomfortable comparing two great shows that I feel like are both capable of being great at the same time. They're both (laughs) one of them doesn't have to be better than the other. They're both delightful. Oh yeah. I just think it's (laughs) it's funny that they both exist in the same in the same time. Like it's funny that that two that two creators understood that we kind of needed shows like this. And I think they're they're complementary in, in a lot of ways. Um, Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that that's something that we've seen as a trend in entertainment across the board over the last few years is I think um, I feel like this has been true in the past year. I feel like I've seen a lot of films that are either explicitly about fascism and what we as a society like or we as individuals are obligated to do to resist it. And at the same time, like creative works that are really really focused on giving voice to how important it is to create a sense of goodness i mean i I think we are just living in a time that everyone is wrestling with these really big questions around you know being divided or being united or what that means and what kind of compromise is required to be good or not be good and it, it is um 
I'm glad that we're at least, I think the pace of media has sped up so much that we've been able to see that play out even in network TV <laughs> while yeah. we're still in the midst of it. Yeah. And I think, and I think so much of, so much of the conversation about all, all media, like all entertainment, there's this, there's this suggestion or implication that, you know, in, in 2020, uh, we should all be thoughtful enough to understand that there's really no avoiding a lot of these socioeconomic issues. Like we should be talking about these things. We should be mentioning things. We should be mentioning homophobia and racism and sexism and all these systemic problems that plague our society. And like maybe Schitt's Creek does have a responsibility to bring them up. But then the counter to that is like, sometimes you just want to fucking break. And <laughs> yeah. there are few better breaks on television or on the internet than Schitt's Creek. And there's almost the sense that they are acutely aware of that. Yeah. I think it's more transgressive than that anyway, because I think that Schitt's Creek is a show that consistently, even if it's in kind of like a low key way that's less explicit, say, than The Good Place, it, mm -hmm. it consistently asks us to think about how are we good and loving people to each other? And like, mm -hmm. what does that look like? And it doesn't mean you can't be a bitchy, sarcastic sibling, right? right? And it doesn't mean you can't sort of torture your own family for whatever, yeah. you know, it doesn't ma mean you can't have this like very snarky, very like, you know, weird, very like teasing sort of dynamic with the people in your family. It Like all of those things can be true, but also it doesn't mean that just because how you once related to someone was one way that you can't deepen that and have a more meaningful connection with someone who you might have taken for granted. I think that is like really entwined in every single episode of the show. I think it's why it's kind of a safe space for people is you get this kind of constant affirmation that the effort is worth it mm -hmm. and that the investment that we make in the people we love is meaningful and necessary and will yield something that makes you feel like that made sense even if it doesn't have to be that transactional right but that you will be glad yeah. that you made yourself vulnerable in order to love someone and i know that sounds like really serious but that's really what i think this show is about like mm -hmm. this show is about people who um were very used to being able to act in a really shallow way and get away with it being forced out of that comfort zone over and over again and that they consistently find that it was worth that risk and worth that fear of being human and emotional and vulnerable and not having maybe a safety net that went with it, ultimately that like their way of dealing with each other and the love they get out of that is worth it. And all of this in a show whose title is a pun. Yes. A pun on Up Shit's Creek. Of course. Just bouncing off of that, what do you think is the most representative episode of this season for someone who's maybe new to it? I know you said start at season three, but is there a particular episode that you think sort of sums up the show's premise pretty well in, you know, 21 minutes? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I, this is not at all where I would say to start, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, the episode that they put forth for Emmy contention last year from season five, The Hike, which is where David and Patrick get engaged. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, last year, it was so great to watch the journey that the show has gone on. And at one point last year, I wrote a piece for EW that was like, here's why Emmy voters and in full disclosure, I am an Emmy voter. Like, <laughs> here's why Emmy voters should consider these nominations. And they were all really specific, right? They were like Catherine O'Hara, 
Annie Murphy, Dan Levy, like here's some specific reasons these actors should be. And then I like made an aside, like a passing comment about how like, hey, if you want to get wild and you really want to think about something crazy, you could even consider whether they should be nominated for best series, for best comedy series. <laughs> and I, when I went and I was pulling the research for the article, I was like, this is never going to happen because almost no non-mainstream shows, it, it's such a weird category. And even though it's loosened up like best comedy a little bit in recent years with more of the streaming networks and some other things, it's just not a category that really rewards oddballs um, mm-hmm. or outliers or shows that don't have like, pre- you know, pretty big followings. Right. So when it was nominated for Best Comedy Series, I kind of lost my mind. I was like, wait, I felt like I was in like an alternate universe where I was like, people have realized that this show deserves to be at that level because I think it's that good. And, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, the hike was, I just think it was everything that's like so great about that episode. So, you know, there's an engagement that comes as a little bit of a surprise. You know, you've got Patrick and David who spend so much of that episode, you know, really uh, not argue. They're not arguing, but they're like bickering a little bit and they're, Mm -hmm. they're kind of driving each other a little nuts, right? Like they're, you know, Patrick has this idea that he wants to create this perfect moment and they're going to go on this hike and they're going to have this picnic and everything goes wrong. And, I think that's standard fodder for a sitcom often, right? You know, it's like, here are these little obstacles. But there's this tenacity to their relationship where it's like they've already been through, not like adversity, but this is like Patrick's first relationship with a guy. He's come out to his parents. He's revealed that he had been in this, you know, engagement to a woman that ended and not well. And, you know, and David has really opened up about all of the ways that like even just having a really serious relationship is a whole new world for him and he doesn't fully understand it or what that means. And at the same time, you know, they have this very comedic hike of disasters and they get to the top and you know there's that moment where David turns around and Patrick has gotten down on one knee and just suddenly has like this most heartfelt speech to him about why he wants to marry him and what that means and and how important it is and I mean I I wept like truly wept like I like (laughs) as if as if it was the first time I had ever seen anything like this happen. Like literally my wife and I sat on the couch holding hands and crying like we were like the most impressionable 13-year-olds who had never seen two queer people be happy. Yeah. Like, and I don't know how else to describe just how like deep and meaningful it was that it felt like revelatory. I like want to cry just thinking about it right now. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like so genuine and so true and I kind of didn't care if it felt universal to other people in that moment. I was like, this is a moment for me. <laughs> and, exactly, yeah. And I know a lot of people really felt like that. And then I think it did really translate to a lot of people who maybe that's not their experience. Um, but it just felt like really sincere. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then funny again. And like, you know, and they're like crying and they're like still kind of giving each other a hard time. So that episode, I feel like, is in so many ways what that show was building to mm-hmm. for much of the couple of seasons before that. I think that's a great choice. And it also made me think of how much I love the the second season finale, which is Yes. I think I've talked about on this podcast before because I think it just it it shows it shows enough growth. I think you go into the second season finale blind and and fall in love with it and understand what it's about. It's that there's there's the comedy and in Stevie and David competing for the same <laughs> man. There's this like sort of like wonderful progressive love triangle and like yeah. quarrel that like couldn't exist in a sitcom 10 years ago and then at the end they've all learned this like wonderful universal lesson 
But yeah. you made me think this particular... Patrick was introduced in season four, right? Not season three. He started midway through season three. Okay. But then um, the engagement happens midway through season five. Yeah. So it's ish. like season three he's introduced. At the end of season three is when they have their first... What turns out to kind of be a date slash kiss. Mm-hmm. And then in season four is when you really sort of see their relationship come together. With the hike episode, you made me think about the pacing of the show and how so many sitcoms for, for decades... <laughs> I mean, they were they were centered around these long, delayed personal triumphs. Yeah, you know, like I'm thinking about like Niles and Daphne getting together in season 100, and Rachel and Ross <laughs> getting together in season 100, and like at the end of the show, yeah, or like the nanny and Mr. Sheffield. And you usually think of, and especially you think of these moments when the characters finally get what they've been wanting for years and years and years, and what the audience has known they deserve for years and years and years. And the and the cliche is that when they get it, the show jumps the shark and it's over. Yeah, right. So it's like sitcoms traditionally take a sort of a sick pleasure in delaying their protagonist's pleasure. But Schitt's Creek finds pleasure in the pleasure, which I think is really, really nice. And I I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned that. It lets them be happy. It's it's really like radical in its own way that Mm -hmm. it's really just like, I think that's part of what the show is saying is it's saying you can want happiness and have it and Mm -hmm. dwell in it. And then have more happiness. Like it's not, yeah. it's not something, it's a, it's a renewable it's resource. We can have more of this as a family. We can have more of this as a couple. It, w- it was something we spent a lot of time talking with Dan about for the binge podcast actually was that so many of the kind of relationship tropes that are often used in sitcom relationships just were absent. They were just missing mm-hmm. where it was like, we weren't going to have this kind of cheap, petty jealousy, you know, like in season four, like David tries to convince Patrick to date other guys. He's like, I don't want you to just, you know, make this decision <laughs> based yeah. on me. Like, what about that guy? He's checking you out. You should go out with him. And, you know, it's like, a, you know, I think they're thinking about each other as people in a way that is more true to how people actually exist in the world and not just in this sort of like, I think, really self-defeating way that comedies often convince you you should do. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to, you know, have these giant problems because of something that truly is a minor conflict. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think Schitt's Creek is a show that consistently, like when there's conflict, there's conflict. And when it's, you know, funny, it's it can be funny, but I think it, it knows in a really deep way which one it is <laughs> at mm-hmm. any given moment right. and it's not trying to pass off something as a significant obstacle or threat when in fact it's like a funny outlier of a story of something that you have to kind of work through which I yeah. really appreciate because I feel like for years my wife and I have joked about how we would be like the world's worst sitcom or the worst television show because we have no conflict like not no <laughs> conflict I mean like we're people we exist in the world like we drive each other crazy sometimes but we almost we don't fight really and I think that's great and narratively I think it's super boring but I don't care because I still think it's like a better alternative yep. right I would rather be a boring married couple and i feel like schitt's creek was the first show i ever saw that i felt like for all of its like funny uh storylines that were happening whether they were with johnny and moira who i think have an epic love story Mm -hmm. right or in in seeing what happens with alexis and ted or or other people who she dates and then and then looking at david and patrick i think it just kind of consistently decides to be honest rather than being cheap yeah, and it doesn't think happiness has to just be an ending. Yeah, it's it's really nice. I I don't know. I'm I, I've I've loved Schitt's Creek 
for for a few years now and I'm I'm just like falling in love with it all over again. It's easy to, I mean think about like David and Stevie, right? So it's like there you have two people who were friends, then they hooked up, then they had this like weird throuple, not weird, but they had a, you know, a throuple situation with Jake and tried to figure yeah. out what that meant and what they were going to do with it and then they decided not to do that and now they're still best friends. <laughs> and it, it, it's just fine. Like it doesn't it's have all to fine. It's fine. It's just literally two people deciding what the rules of engagement for their relationship and love for each other are going to be and that they get to decide that mm-hmm. it's it's funny how quickly you ignore the fact that like the Shit's creek economy makes no sense oh, like how no how sense. this universe makes no <laughs> sense and like you just have to tell people like yes it makes no sense just just watch two episodes and you will get over it it's completely fine just enjoy yeah. the fact that these people are having a good time yeah Exactly. But before I let you go, this has been so much fun. And honestly, I, ju- I mean this. I my, my respect for Schitt's Creek was already stratospheric and it, and it somehow increased talking to you. But before I let you go, I have one more question. Sure. If you were a Moira Rose wig, mm. which wig would you be? God, they're all so... Or which wig would you wear? Those are... Okay. I really like <laughs> the ones that are kind of purple or blue. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all good. I love the blue ones. Yeah. She's got a like a straight blue one. She's got that curly blue one that she's worn. Yeah, there's one I feel like maybe it was in season six, but I feel like I just saw one that was more of like kind of a lilac, um, like a soft purple. It was kind of mm-hmm. flippy, and I really liked that one. I wore a wig like that once for Halloween, so I can imagine wearing it. I just love her commitment to them. I love that she that they have names that they mm-hmm. <laughs> all have stories i love that we have heard at various points about her her children's relationship to them when they were growing up <laughs> like everyone has a moira wig story i love that her that the pegboard holding the wigs is sort of like mary poppins-esque where it's like there's no way all of the wigs she's worn in the show have been in that apartment but it doesn't matter it can be I magical i love this i know i love knowing that like in that moment of what do you pack when you have to you know quickly escape from your um, life of excess and obviously in a, an extremely non-negotiable way the wigs were coming just the wigs yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you so much Shana this was so much fun thanks for having me and all but the final season of Netflix is now streaming on Netflix and we will be back next week with another episode see you then <laughs> <laughs>